Healthcare is rapidly changing. Innovative technologies and new treatment paradigms are changing the way we tackle the world's pervasive health issues. I'm Alex Godin with Oxner Health in New Orleans, Louisiana. Join me as we go inside Louisiana's largest healthcare system, where we discuss new ideas in confronting these healthcare challenges. We talk to thought leaders and healthcare experts to explore the latest innovations in patient care. Welcome to Innovation Health. As children of all ages return to school during the pandemic, many schools have implemented a remote learning approach where children are able to attend class online. However, as many parents and teachers have seen, this method of learning can be quite difficult for some children and their families, sometimes causing anxiety, stress, and even depression. In this episode of Innovation Health, we talk with Oxner Health pediatric psychologist, Dr. Jill West, to get to the bottom of what may be causing this and also get some tips on what parents can do to help families going through this. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. West. I'm really excited to have Dr. Jill West with us on the podcast today. She is a licensed clinical and school psychologist here at Oxner. And if we can start out and just have you kind of describe what that means, what your role is here at Oxner, and kind of what you do in the practice. Sure. Glad to. Thanks for having me. I have a couple of different roles at Oshner. I serve as the section head for child psychology. We have a growing group of really talented child psychologists that do a lot of different things, taking care of kids with medical dis disabilities, medical differences, uh, developmental disabilities, um, kids who are struggling with things like anxiety and depression. So we have a really great team of people that do that. My specific practice focus is on working with children who have chronic or significant medical conditions, because we know that medical conditions influence us psychologically and, and what we have going on psychologically affects us medically. So those, there's a kind of a natural connection between those two things. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of being able to be involved with our Safe to Return to Schools team. That's a newly formed work, working group of connection between education outreach and business development and pediatrics. And so we're really trying to help schools think about how to support their students as they return to school and as they're navigating this you know, less than favorable and very unprecedented set of circumstances with the pandemic and what that means with getting kids back into school. So that's been um, a newer part of my role, you know, since the pandemic started, but one that I think is really valuable and really brings together a lot of interesting, interesting minds and, and, and voices on the topic. Yeah, and it's definitely a large thing affecting a lot of people. You know, throughout the pandemic, as a child psychologist, what kind of major trends or shifts have you been seeing? Yeah, I think um, not surprisingly, you know, the first reaction that most people had was shock and anxiety. And I don't know that that would be, you know, unexpected or unanticipated. I think that's a really natural human emotion to what's going on. I think that that has, you know, evolved over time because it what started out as something that we really didn't know what that was going to mean or what was going to happen. Is this going to be a couple of weeks? Is this going to be a month? Here we are months and months later. And now we have, you know, started to adapt to this, this quote unquote new normal, right? We're all that we're all living. But 
this new normal is still lots of things that are unpredictable, lots of things that are ever changing. And it's, it's, it's sort of the antithesis of uh, being able to cope with anxiety. One way, you know, just sort of a common theme of how people across the entire developmental spectrum cope with anxiety or how we recommend that people cope with anxiety is by having a structure, creating a plan, making things as predictable as possible. And this, you know, this set of circumstances is really the antithesis to that. And, and it makes it very difficult to do that, which I think is what leads to a lot of the ongoing anxiousness. And of course, that that happen that's happening with all of us, but it it's affecting our children um, because of you know, how, how it's changed their lives as well. And I think maybe that could even be applied to the virtual learning side of things. You know, some people are being impacted by that major change in routine differently than others. Um, and I, I want to kind of get into that, the virtual learning aspect. What are some of the major issues or concerns you've kind of seen throughout that process? Sure. Great question. I, I think... You know, it, it goes without saying that there are many, many, many layers of stress around this. So virtual learning also inherently means that now a child that would be in a physical building doing learning under someone's supervision and guidance is now not in that place anymore. So they now have to have someone else providing them that caregiving. That's been an incredible stressor on parents and caregivers to now have to also be teachers or tutors or, you know, whatever, however we in want addition to, to them. full-time job. <laughs> Correct. In addition to many people, you know, working and, you know, having lots of times there are multiple children in one household. So you're dealing with siblings at different developmental levels. And of course, all of the other things that um, are, are difficult about being a parent. So I, I think, you know, that, that sort of goes without saying that this is a tremendous burden on, on parents and caregivers to figure out how to navigate this. And particularly so for, for younger children who aren't able to, you know, self-monitor any of those behaviors and aren't even able, you know, they're not even able to stay home by themselves. You know, at least a, a later high school student can maybe be able to get through a school day independently and stay at home independently. But when we're talking about really anyone younger than that, that's, that's not a reasonable expectation. That's why school exists the way that it does. So I think, you know, there's there's the, the theme of how stressful this is for parents and caregivers is one major thing that I, you know, have been hearing over and over for, for very understandable reasons. And then I think the second thing is just, you know, related to how difficult it is to all of a sudden make someone's home a learning environment. So homes are not typically learning environments. And that's really, you know, can be very difficult for some families to think about how they're going to navigate through that. And just completely changing the context and the environment of learning for the student. I'm sure that could be really confusing. Um, You mentioned self-monitoring and some of that self-motivation. Is there specific things parents could do to help facilitate that or, or encourage that within their students and children? Yeah, that's a great question. The uh, The American Psychological Association just um, published some guidance on this, which I think is pretty helpful about some ways that parents might think about motivating their children. Um, some, some things that I'll comment on, just sort of high-level things that I think 
apply to most children and most developmental levels is, um, you know, really capturing good behavior and recognizing good behavior. I think one thing that we as human beings, our, our minds are sort of primed to do this. And as parents, we're sort of primed to do this. We tend to focus on a negative behavior and try to correct it. And sometimes when things are going smoothly, we're just sort of like, whew, okay, it's going smoothly. Don't rock the boat, right? And we miss an opportunity to provide reinforcement for the right behavior. And instead, we end up focusing on the wrong behaviors. And so I think Mm -hmm. that's one just sort of general principle that when parents can think about, okay, if I asked my child to, you know, participate in their virtual learning activity for 20 minutes, and they were actually able to sit and do the virtual learning activity for those 20 minutes, I want to make sure that throughout that 20 minutes, I gave them some sort of a verbal praise, you know, hey, you're doing a great job focusing. I love how you're sitting and looking at the screen. I love how you're paying attention to your teacher. Some of those just kind of kind of little verbal praises laced in there. And then ideally, some sort of a, an immediate Um, reinforcement afterwards. Since you did so great with that lesson, why don't you go run around for 10 minutes? Go run around in the backyard. Or, you know, why don't you um, read your book that you're Mm -hmm. you're very interested for 10 minutes or something like that? Um, So, you know, I think that's that's not easy. That requires a lot of effort from a parent to do that. But I also think we have oodles and oodles of research to suggest that kids really respond well to that. And so I'm also interested to see, have has there been any research done about kind of the, I guess, more literal ability to learn virtually? So I feel like for many parents, it can be pretty discouraging if, if your child just seems completely disengaged in the material, distracted, it's hard to focus, and you kind of just have to wonder, like, are they even retaining this? Are they learning anything? So is there kind of any, you know, thoughts that you guys might have on that or stuff you've seen there? Um, I, I think... Another very valid concern that teachers and parents alike mm-hmm. are are sharing, what is going to happen to the actual academic progress of this, you know, this cohort of children that is experiencing this pandemic while they're also students. Um, I don't know of any research data that is, you know, specifically correlated to whether outcomes are the same for virtual learning versus in-person learning. I think we will get that data. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that's going to come? That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I I think we, you know, I think we need to get it because I think the other thing that that's going to be a result of this pandemic is that, believe it or not, there is there is a subset of people who are finding that this model actually works really well for them and works really well for their families. There may be some reasons a child's medical status, for instance, or um, some other you know, concern that the child is experiencing where they maybe it's been very difficult for them to participate in in-person learning. So having this other option oh, is actually great. Really, really great for them. You know, that's probably not the vast majority of children and families, but there is a subset of children that, you know, we've had online homeschool programs that have been in existence for quite some time that families electively participated mm-hmm. in. Think that's something also very different when you're forced to do this um and and it's not kind of what was in your plan that's a little different than if yeah you and just a drastic change kind of from what you were doing prior 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think when, when families enter into that uh, electively, they, they kind of have thought through the infrastructure to be able to support it in advance, and they've made an informed decision rather than it being sort of, like you said, thrust upon them and here, this was unanticipated, now figure it out. But, you know, I think we there is no there is no data that i am aware of that suggests that those families historically that have electively enrolled in programs like that that those children have any different educational outcomes than children who've done in person learning that doesn't exactly get at so what about these you know millions of children in the us that are you know forced to be doing virtual learning and maybe that's not how they learn best. I do think that there will probably be some some kids for whom this does present some academic disadvantages and challenges and um and I think that will also, you know, just mean that we have to think about how to appropriately ad- assess those children going forward. You know, what do are we going to change grade level expectations? Are we going to think about how instruction maybe needs to help catch them up? You know, I think those are things that we'll see um, continuing to emerge in the education world as as things that you know teachers and, and academic communities are thinking through. And it's interesting, too, because it's not like the shift to virtual learning is this independent variable, and it's just black and white. They were in school, now they're virtual. There's just so much more around it because of the pandemic. And it's not just virtual learning, it's virtual learning with stress from, you know, lack of seeing others, stress in the family. You know, there's just so much more going on, I feel, that that will be interesting to see how that changes the conversation. Absolutely so. If if this was maybe the one variable that had changed for people, okay, maybe we would see more people <laughs> being able to adapt to that. But I right. think yes, when you when when virtual learning also means now I don't get to see my friends as often if at all. I don't maybe get to do any kind of physical activity like PE or recess as easily. You know, we have lots and lots and lots of individuals don't live in places or in buildings that support them to safely be outside mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And, you know, we maybe also, you know, for some families, this might mean reduced access to reliable meals. You know, this, this, those are some of the, some of the things that are impacting families. And then of course, just all of the, the routine of, you know, we get up, you go to school, I go to work, you know, we have kind of this predictable cadence to our day, you know, that's all changed too. Right. So there's there's so many layers and I'm missing, you know, I'm, I'm not mentioning many, many, many other layers, but there's so many different ways that this has impacted people. So I think you're right. I mean, if it was just a shift to virtual learning and if it was just a consistent and predictable shift to virtual learning, we were in person Calculated, and now we're not. yeah. <laughs> Right. And as you know, it's we were in person and now we were not. And then we were back and for, for a how week. long? And then right. And then <laughs> and now we're we had out. some people <laughs> test positive. So now we're back to virtual learning or in our region, you know, there's a threat of a hurricane. So we're back off of school for a couple of days to make sure everybody can stay safe. So I think there's um, there's been lots of disruptions and those disruptions, you know, some of those disruptions, a child getting sick and having to miss a few days of school or uh, a hurricane threat and having school closed for a few days. Those things we're used to. But I think, again, that in the context of all of the other changes and adaptations that we're trying to get used to makes it especially difficult. 
So you mentioned um, the kind of emotional and social impact that many children might be facing being isolated, not seeing their friends as much, even not having that teacher in-person interaction. What tips Mm -hmm. could you give parents who are concerned about this? Like, is there anything they should be doing or kind of in a way to foster that more social development piece? Sure. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a another great question and, you know, a, a could potentially be a very lengthy answer. I'll try to <laughs> right? I'll try to keep it brief. I think, you know, the the sort of quote unquote good news for very young children. Um, I know a lot of, you know, kids of kids who are parents of kids who are under the age of 5 are you know, thinking about, well, this is when, you know, they're learning how to make friends and they're making friendships. I think that's true. But I also think that that's a period of time where lots of children don't have a lot of exposure to other children, you know, families who have a parent or caregiver who stays at home and, you know, they they don't have any kind of formal social activities or opportunities. That age group can't be left alone. They have to be with someone. They're young enough that that someone has to be providing care for them. So they're getting social interactions. They may not be getting a ton of interactions from peers, but they're getting social interactions. And those social interactions are what's really important for that age group in terms of building communication, learning how to you know take turns and share and express their emotions and understand mm-hmm. someone's emotions. Of course, all of those are skills that are developing across the you know developmental trajectory. But for, for really young kids, they, they're going to be cared for by someone. And so that person can be the, the person who I think can help them with that social and emotional development. I want to I think on... oh, I ahead. was just going to say very quickly. Yeah, go ahead. I think we really are, are seeing this impacting most that that age group that is relying more and more on peers to, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's kind of where they are getting their most influence and getting their most reinforcement from. And so we usually see that kind of in late preteens and then certainly in teenagers, there's kind of this developmental shift that's natural and developmentally appropriate, but it's a shift from my, my immediate family and who I spend my most time with in my family is who who kind of matters most to me to a shift where now it's my peers kind of matter most to me. And so I think it's really, I can so, so sort of say anecdotally, um, the the teenagers who I, who I work with in the clinical setting are really struggling with not being able to have as many opportunities to see friends. Even kids who weren't particularly social pre-pandemic we're at least having some of those social interactions at school every day. Right. And the ones who are doing virtual learning, you know, yes, they might be in Zoom classes or something with their friends, but those little like, you know, someone nudges you in the hallway and says, what's up, buddy? You know, like you're not getting those just little injections of socialization. I think kids were at school. So I know that age group is really struggling. And so in terms of tips for parents, I think those that's the age group where I think parents should really be paying attention. Mm hmm. And, you know, kind of paying attention to shifts in behavior. So a, a child or a teenager who who used to be very engaged and outgoing and spend a lot of time with the family is now spending most of the time in the room with the door closed. Someone who, you know, seems like they're, they're tearful for no reason or they can't tell you why they're tearful, changes in sleep, changes in appetite, um, you know, really any kind of alarming changes in behavior doesn't necessarily, you know, that doesn't automatically, I guess is the best way to say it, doesn't automatically indicate that there's, you know, a problem with anxiety or a problem with depression. But those would be sort of, I guess, red flags. And I I would suggest that the first thing that parents do is 
talk with the child's primary care provider about those symptoms. And most primary care providers are able to do like an office-based sort of screening of those symptoms. And then they can really help discern is this a child that maybe needs to be referred for some behavioral health support, you know, maybe with a therapist or something like that? Or is this a child who's maybe just kind of going through an adjustment period? Or is there maybe some other explanation for for some of those behavioral changes? So I think that, you know, parents just kind of paying attention. And if they have, if they have concerns, raising those concerns, because sometimes, you know, sometimes it is a valid concern and we want to make sure that those teenagers are getting support or really children of any age, but especially teenagers. And, um, and then, and then, you know, the pediatrician or or primary care provider is a good place, you know, good kind of gatekeeper to help you think through. They're able to be a little bit more objective, right? Parents are not so good at being objective about their own, about their own kids, but asking sort of (laughs) naturally correct, but not, you know, asking sort of an, an outside objective opinion, um, as to kind of how to proceed, I think is really helpful. So you kind of mentioned being all in one household. I want to get your take on how this could affect a family dynamic. So kind of setting the scene, say you have two school-aged children, one of them, you know, trying to be on the Zoom, but they just want to do handstands and, you know, do their own thing. One is trying to sneakily watch YouTube videos, you know, and it could create friction for the parents who are really trying to foster this education. And it's just hard and starts to create maybe some tension within the household. What kind of is your take on that and, and suggestions there? Yeah, I think, you know, I I feel a little bit like a broken record. I think, again, it's not a simple answer. It's not a quick answer. I wish I had Mm -hmm. just some sort of a magical do this and that makes it better. But I, I do think that, you know, a couple of things. First and foremost, parents and caregivers have got to be engaging in some sort of self-care. If we're not taking good care of ourselves, we're not going to be particularly effective at taking care of anyone else. Secondly, I think that the importance of having a a structure or a routine, even if it's not the same day to day, if at the beginning of the day, everybody in the household sort of understands this is going to be, you know, how our day is going to look and this is going to kind of be the, you know, the structure of our day and this Mm -hmm. is our plan, that just sort of helps on the front end with some of those conflicts that come with, but I thought we were doing this, but I wanted to do that, you know, but, but, but kind of uh, things that, you know, <laughs> kids love to, kids love to do. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's another recommendation. And then really at the, at the very most basic level, um, things like making sure that as part of that routine, we're having meals regularly, we're moving, doing something active on a regular basis, and we're having a bedtime, you know, when we are at home most of the time, it starts to sort of feel like an endless weekend. Yes. And a lot of times, <laughs> time you know, we're as a blur. <laughs> time is a blur. And a lot of times, you know, families on weekends, they do kind of loosen up the restrictions a little bit. And that's great. That's wonderful. But when that starts to bleed into now your whole week looks like that, and that week has now gone on for months and months and months. That starts to definitely create tension. I think families, you know, they're butting heads with each other. They're spending a lot more time together than maybe they normally would. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of that together time is kind of marred by conflict because it's, come on, I told you to do this and I'm redirecting you to do that. And, you know, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And it's kind of this, you know, negativity. So I think, you know, really kind of paying attention to those those basic wellness things that we all need. We need sleep. We need to eat on a regular basis. We need to move. We need breaks from screens. Those are all things that I think, you know, 
being sort of mindful of making sure that those are inserted into a structure and routine are, are important as well. Thank you so much, Dr. West, for joining us today. This was a really, really awesome conversation. I think going to be helpful for a lot of people listening. We're definitely going to have to have you back for another episode. Um, so thank you for your time today. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Like I said a few times, not not an easy or clear-cut uh, topic or set of recommendations. And and really, you know, we're still kind of reeling from this and trying to understand oh, yeah. it. So, you know, lots and lots of things to say and lots of ideas, but thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about a few of them. Thank you. So if you're one of the many parents who are going through this situation with your children, I hope you take comfort in knowing that you are not alone in this experience. Oxner psychologists are here to help. And if you find that your children are exhibiting excessive negative mental health, go to my.oxner.org to schedule an appointment. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Alex Godan with Oxner Health. See you next time on Innovation Health.